welcome to the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society. Welcome to ITSB Magazine. You're listening to a new The Hacker Factory podcast with hacker maker, Philip Wiley. You're about to discover what the role of a professional hacker entails, the different specializations it holds, and what it takes to learn and become one. Enjoy the conversation as Philip and guests unveil the secrets of professional hacking, a mysterious, intriguing, and often misunderstood occupation. Knowledge is power, now more than ever. BugCrowd's award-winning platform combines actionable contextual intelligence with the skill and experience of the world's most elite hackers to help leading organizations identify and fix vulnerabilities, protect customers, and make the digitally connected world a safer place. Learn more at bugcrowd.com. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Hacker Factory Podcast. I'm your host, Philip Wiley, the Hacker Maker. In each episode, I have a guest sharing their unique journey into cybersecurity and sharing their advice and tips on how to get started. And so each one of these episodes kind of resonates different with people. And I think this one is really going to be a great episode. Uh, My guest has had experience helping others in another part of his career and recently went to work for a consulting company. So I think he's got a lot of great advice to share with you. Welcome to the show, Mark. Thanks, Philip. Uh, Could you uh, share with our guests a little bit about yourself? Yeah, so I'm Mark Harvey. Um, I recently joined the um, Alias Security, (coughs) Alias Information Security Group. And uh, it's a company out of Oklahoma City. And I am currently the security engineer in their Richmond, Virginia office. Actually, their only security engineer. Oh, very cool. So, uh, yeah, if you could kind of get a little more of your backstory, how where you were at before you got into security and kind of share that journey. Yeah, sure. And so before this role, I was with uh, the University of Richmond as one of their um, business analysts. And so largely we worked on uh, gathering and managing all of the data, uh, kind of revolving around uh, pretty much anything that was uh, purchase-related, money, transactional, that was non-academic related. And so anything that was outside of like uh, tuition, largely. And so gathered a lot of data there and did a lot of um, data visualization management, the typical business intelligence tasks. Um, but before that, for about uh, five, six years, um, I was the IT director at the University of Alabama in uh, student affairs. And so I got to do a lot of fun stuff there of working with students, helping up set up uh, student organizations, as well as you know uh, build a, a full-size remodel of a, of a movie theater that I don't think it was touched since like probably like late 80s, late 90s. It still had like crushed red velvet walls and stuff, so <laughs> it was pretty vintage. Um, and so I had a lot of time and a lot of fun with that because uh, when I when I took that role, the previous uh, staff had not set up any sort of policies or procedures for anything IT related, and so it was kind of the wild west. So had to uh, take the full scope of going top to bottom and making everything the way it's supposed to be. Very cool. Sometimes those are some of the some of the best lessons learned. One of my, actually, my second, uh, or actually one of my one of my first 
IT jobs as a sysadmin, I went to work for this company. My first job was doing a lot of rollouts, you know, servers and desktops. And I went to work for this mortgage company and crap kept always breaking all the time. And I was really ready to quit. There was only like two or three of us on the team. We're on call. We had to trade, you know, trade off. And some of the people were kind of junior level on the team. So they may need help. So it was really like a lot of times you really weren't off call, but it's very stressful. And, and I was really thinking strongly about moving on and going somewhere else. But I thought, you know, I had all this time fixing or, or building, but I don't have the fixing experience, the troubleshooting. So I stuck it out and it was a good, was a good uh, call to do that. So, yeah. And I mean, before that role, I started, I also worked as a uh, instructional technologist in um, various forms and levels of help desk. And so a lot of that stuff helped because I was either, you know, listening and responding to a problem or listening and watching when it was escalated. So uh, the the best part of that was like I started and then like, I don't know, like two, two maybe three weeks later, uh, they were like, oh, hey, by the way, we're having an audit. We need you to come to this meeting. <laughs> and so I was looking through all of like their findings and I was like, yeah, yeah, we, we yeah, I'm, I'm aware of these things and I, I will get them fixed. <laughs> and so I had to take a largely experienced and not very well instructed staff and then kind of reboot and re refocus them on getting all the tasks done and making sure things were nice and safe and secure because they had hilarious ridiculous things like you know private minecraft servers and you know random data just sitting around fun stuff like that very interesting so did that kind of uh kind of stoke your ambition or interest in cybersecurity deal with that so i had the nice position of being totally in charge of most of our um our area in our large building and so i got to take part in basically all of the meetings there um the university was really good about working collaboratively with all of the it uh, satellite offices and so we all work together and so when you have <clears throat> a campus that large you can have um, incidents that can kind of jump between buildings. So if you have somebody running around with, you know, some flash drives and some Raspberry Pis and then trying to use University Net to pull down some BitTorrent stuff, you might have to uh, track them between buildings <laughs> as they try and pirate videos <laughs> and other stuff. Or you might have uh, someone who migrates between the computer labs trying to uh, load software so they can skim people's credentials for either their academic stuff or just their uh, purchasing or, you know, web stores. Um, and so I had a, a lot of opportunity to work with it in a lot of uh, parts at various levels, either hands-on or, you know, writing up policies and procedures. Um, but it wasn't until COVID-19 that I was like, wow, I'm going to take some time and actively go get hands-on with this. Oh, very cool. So kind of what did you do training-wise in your preparation to make that jump? So I think it was maybe the like December 2019 advent of cyber um, on TriHackMe. 
I randomly on YouTube saw a John Hammond video and uh, was like, hey, I, I know how to do that. <laughs> <laughs> and I can't for the life of me remember what challenge it was. But I was like, I, I remember how to do that because I thought about one of the other times where I saw it happen. And so I went on there and I probably did all, uh, what, 27 days, something like that. Um, and I was like, yeah, I, I want to keep going with this. And so I had just moved to Richmond. I was there for maybe like two months before everything locked down. So I was trapped in my home and had nowhere to go and was like, yep, we're, we're going to learn this. And so, yeah, I quickly, quickly burned down Try Hack Me um, very frequently, very often and had a lot of fun. So that is that was the first step. And then about two, two and a half months after I did that, this is how rapidly it was. Uh, two and a half months after that, I was like, I have no idea if I actually know how to do this. And so I took the uh, EJPT. <laughs> and okay. so, yeah, it was uh, a solid experience. And I got that certification. I was like, huh, I, I can continue working on this. <laughs> <laughs> and then I... Uh, you know, started breaking out into Hack the Box and Hacker 101 CDF and a couple other things. And then I was like, you know, I was going to give it a year, but I'm going to start working towards the OSCP. So I've been currently doing that uh, still right now. It's been a little bit slower because I've been actively kind of doing some things now. <laughs> but I do need to do that. Well, that's good that you kind of got some experience with the try hack me stuff that'll and going through the EJPT, you've got a little bit of a got it some foundation built there, so that's a good thing. Yeah, it's a it's a solid primer. Um, I know people are very polarized on uh, the applicable use of CF, but they are a solid primer. Yeah, definitely. Well, thing thing I go back to, and you hear some people that bash on the OSCP which I think it's a valuable cert. And I think you definitely, once you get through it, you have you have some skills there that are very applicable to the world. But when you hear people that bash on it, you look at John Hammond, that dude is awesome with CTFs. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And that guy can hack just about anything. So if you ask me, then CTFs must be pretty good. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I know it's, uh, you know, people are very polarized when it comes to certifications and particular ones. Don't get me wrong. Um, offensive security did have kind of a, a bro-y kind of neck beard kind of fan base, you know, 10, 15 years ago. And that didn't help them. Um, but I know people love to argue whether or not it's, you know, either too CTF-like or it's CTF-like in general. But, you know, it is, it is a test. Um, tests revolve around structure <laughs> and metrics. And so... Yes, basically any test that you've ever taken is a CTF. Yeah. And so, yeah, there's really, don't get me wrong, I understand. It is, you know, quite expensive, but, you know, it is a solid certification. Yeah, it influenced a lot of others because no one else was doing the hands-on type labs like that for their for their exams. So a lot of people, you know, there's people that you see the influence out there that have taken some of that into what they're doing, maybe not as extreme but it's good that that they've they've evolved too. I think they've kind of evolved back whenever offensive security came out. Really, it was more it was not to say 
and they seem to be changing and making it more friendly to people trying to get in the industry. But before, whenever I went through that, went through it, I started in 2012 and finished. Yeah. I started about April or May of 2012 and finished by June of 2013. But the thing was the only people that knew about it were people that were in security, want to be pen testers. And now it's just so common knowledge that people that don't even know how did you know what a firewall is or wanting to take the OSCP. So it's, you know, it's out there new and then, you know, it's kind of difficult. Now, if you went through something like EJPT and some other things, it's not going to be so difficult, but to come in with no technical skills at all and try to do it. Yeah. It's going to be difficult, but, and I do hear a lot of complaints about the try harder thing, but the one good thing about try harder is the fact that, no, we're not just going to give you the answers. We're not just going to give you the answers and you have to put, and it pushed me because sometimes when people have access to the answers, they're just going to keep asking for the answers. And yeah. You know. and, and so I think it's kind of one of those things that, uh, you know, it's born from the, the earlier late nineties and early two thousands internet where people are, you know, kind of that stack overflow vibe where they get very aggressive very quickly. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, one of the things in the aspects of the try harder is that, you know, in a certain context, it does sound abrasive and rude. Um, but genuinely, if you've ever tried to instruct anyone or teach them, and you know that they're close, it, it is a very useful thing to just say, hey, think about it a little bit longer. You know, look into something, you know, you are close. Because, yeah, not giving them the answer at that moment is way better than hand-holding them every time right at the end when they're yeah. already almost there. You know, I think there, there needs to be a good balance, and a good example of that is like virtual hacking labs. I don't know if you've ever tried that out or not. I haven't tried that one. But virtual hacking labs, they've got like a, a short PDF or online HTML course on pen testing, and then they release you to the labs, and the labs will start out with from easy all the way up to, to very difficult and they have them labeled and each one of those gives you a little bit about a detail, a little bit of details on each one of those boxes. And as you progress, they give you less help. And then once you get to a certain level, you're not getting, you're getting a little help or none to figure it out. So it's really kind of helping you out because you're building that base. Once you get that base, they kind of feel like, well, you shouldn't need as much help. And I think that's, that's a good method. And I like the way that they did that. Yeah, that's a smart method. Um, I know, and it's mostly born from CTFs and then a little bit of issues. Really, if you build into your instructional material a lot less rabbit holes um, or some of the kind of like errors and you know throw-off methods that they might have to where like you can kind of nudge the person that this isn't the way in, that would be better for a lot of this kind of stuff. Um, cause yeah, I agree that like sometimes, you know, giving somebody zero idea what they're doing, you know, sounds like it's realistic. Um, but like if you're in an exam scenario, it's different than when like you're on, on the job with something like when you're on the job, you already have a base level of reconnaissance just by negotiating with that client. And then you go even further over the course of a couple of days. And so... Yeah, I, I have a slight bit of issue with some of how some of these certifications work, but I do believe that all of them should swap over to a hands-on. Although, 
I will say I did like the mix that um, I and E had, or E learns everyone. Yeah. Um, uh, I did like that they had both kind of questions and hands-on at the same time, um, because the questions sort of reinforced that you were actually on the right path to begin with. And so I think that model is you know, probably something that's going to spread. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. For people to even like the CEH, I think their master CEH requires some hands-on stuff, I believe, trying to, you know, kind of do what the rest of the industry is doing. But yeah, the hands-on stuff is, is really important. So in your in your role, what type of what type of stuff do you do as a consultant? So um, we are fresh setting up this Virginia office. And so largely what I do right now is um, talk. Okay. Talking, I do a lot of research for everybody, as much as I can. And so, uh, while we have like um, cl- active clients and stuff going on right now, um, it's just me here. <laughs> and so, I work with the team over in Oklahoma, and basically work to assist them right now. And so, when I'm not doing that, I'm actually currently working on trying to recruit a couple of SOC analysts and then some. Maybe uh, like a level two, one or two uh, security engineer. Oh, very cool. Yeah. So, how do your skills that from your academic world, you know, that previous career, does that seem to be helping out much in your your current role? Um, a lot. Uh, <laughs> and so, working in student affairs, uh, I had a staff that was just my technicians that could have been anywhere between like four to twelve people at any given time um, working specifically for me and being trained by me. Um, But other than that, we had outside of my particular area, we had 160 um, staff that we shared. And so I learned a lot about um, managing and directing a herd of cats. Um, (laughs) And then, um, you know, basically being adaptable to what's going on because, you know, any number of things can go just pear shape at a university. (laughs) Um, and so, yeah, I learned a ton of education concepts and like pedagogy, how to instruct people and stuff like that by just working around all of the faculty for those years. Very cool. So I guess it's kind of interest, interesting that you were in the academic world working around that. So how do you kind of feel like the comparisons between, you know, what the schools were teaching to teach people security or some type of technology compared to the stuff you're experiencing with the e-learn INE stuff and try hacking and all that compared to some of the stuff you experienced or saw in the academic world. Well, you know, as we know, academia largely revolves around tons of theory. Um, and that's because like to make a curriculum, you have to sort of make a base standard, um, a min and a maximum of what they're going to learn that has to you know, range like 10 years. And so uh, a lot of times, and it's changing, and a lot of times, but in current ac- academia for anything having to do with tech programming, security, is that it's going to be very conceptual and it's going to be pretty delayed. And so they may discuss what a CVE is, but if you're going to talk about one specifically, it's going to be from like, 10, 12 years ago. 
Um, and it's just the nature of how college works right now. It's very difficult to update and maintain a curriculum um, like cybersecurity and tech in general when you know you're looking at like two, two, three week cycles at sometimes when you know something is super incredibly important to when it's irrelevant. And yeah, it's it's rough. And so they try and really get people the idea of the theory revolving around these concepts and then really push them to be critical thinker, thinkers about it. Um, it's what I tell kind of everybody that uh, IT is all the same from top to bottom. Um, you just either increase or decrease complexity as you go. So everything just kind of carries over to the next thing. And uh, that's a very academic way of handling it. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's kind of interesting you mentioned that because one of the things that that can be a challenge is I know from from teaching at a community college that how soon you have to tell them what books you're going to use and then the books where the, how up to date they are. So you may adopt new textbooks, but you may not get to use them until next year, and all that plays into even if the books are up to date or not. So yeah, that can be can be challenging. Yeah, and I mean, for some colleges, universities, community colleges, it can come down to budget of what books they can afford um, for the students, rather. And so, mm -hmm. you know, they have the how the metric breaks down for what you can use for the class and then what your actual students can afford. Um, I have a friend of mine who's a history professor. His his main history book costs like $700. Um, wow. Like, yeah, for like PhD grade um, medievalist history textbook. And so he... Uh, didn't even use his own textbook. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my next book I write it should be a textbook since they charge so much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's a pretty solid solid method if you can get one in there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so very very cool. So kind of kind of interesting too. I know you you're involved in the community because when you're trying to break in and stuff. So what were some of the communities that that you kind of leverage to network with and educate yourself through? Um, so, you know, first I started with uh, Try Hack Me and John Hammond. That eventually took me over to uh, David Bomble, which then took me to, um, oh, and David Bomble and Network Chuck, which then took me into uh, cyber and security, which is actually where I first interacted with you. <laughs> <laughs> and so, uh, you know, a lot of Discord groups because I eventually moved around and I found like uh, Bishop Fox and Black Hills Security both have very good Discords, engage with the community a ton. Um, and uh, honestly, after that, I started just if I listen to like say a Darknet Diaries or something like that, uh, or even you know uh, Threatwire and Hack Five, I would just ask people, you know, hey, what's up? and talk to them about whatever it is that they were particularly known for or good at or researched. And uh, most people, honestly, are just kind of ready to talk. Yeah, another thing I was just kind of uh, curious about, too, is, you know, you, you've made the move over recently, but, you know, once you get to kind of your goal of the role you're wanting to be in, you kind of see some mistakes you made or some other things you may have not known about. So if you had it to do all over again, would you do anything different about what you did to, to get in cybersecurity? 
if I was to go back and get in, um, yeah, I would have spent a lot more time on, uh, you know, basically like the grassroots area of when all this started to spin up, when they started making like Vuln Hub and uh, uh, Virtual Box. Like, if I had focused in on that, um, yeah, I probably would have been way more skilled and gotten in way earlier. And so it's really just, um, you know, having fun learning things. Because um, before, I was focused on, okay, well, I'll just get into uh, you know, IT management or business area of IT. And then I realized that I never got to really do anything hands-on, and that's kind of lame. And so what I really like about uh, uh, cybersecurity is that you kind of can continue to be hands-on whether you're at work or not. And uh, I really enjoy that. And so if I had known that I could, uh, you know, dive into Try Hack Me, because I think they were around in like, like, hmm, like 2015 is when I think they started something like that. They're just much smaller. I definitely would have just burned through it so much earlier. Yeah, just uh, totally agree because you find that. And that's one of the things, too, when people are trying to get in the industry. If you can find communities or someone to mentor you and help you out, it's a lot easier because trying to go through content and find out what's good or not. You know, there's lots of content on Udemy and YouTube but you don't always know if it's good, and especially when you're starting out that you, you know, someone like yourself, you know, John Hammond and some other people in the industry, and you kind of know to trust their content. But when you're kind of starting out before you get that level, you don't know what to do. So that can be kind of tricky for people trying to get in. Yeah. And it's one of those things when you're trying to learn something new and, you know, especially in the United States, the education system kind of pushes you to think that you have to learn the right thing. And then that right thing will give you this sort of sure result. So when you try and do that in the tech world, um, there really is no right thing. Because what you're really learning is essentially just a whole bunch of basically just Legos. And so, you know, yeah, they're, <laughs> they're just tech Legos. And so you just kind of attach them together and build something. And then if you really wanted, you could take them apart and build an entirely other thing with these same parts. <sighs> and so, you know, people really focus and worry about, like, which, which programming language to start with, you know, which scripting language, what operating system. All that doesn't really matter. And so if you sort of understand what those things are and how they work and just have fun playing with them, you'll get, 10 times better, so much faster. Yeah, I agree with that. Sometimes it seems like when learning is forced, it's kind of hard to learn and hard to motivate. But if you're making, you know, doing doing it in a way that's fun to you and interesting, it's a lot easier. And that's why you see a lot of people trying to, you know, gamify things and why stuff like hack the box and try hack me is fun and CTFs. So it's a, a great way to learn. Yeah, and it's, basically impossible to always, you know, bank on having motivation. And so, you know, if you do have fun with it, and like when you're learning, and it's just like, you know, regular academic learning, sports, music, things like that, it's still just learning. And so when you have fun with it, you 
get that little dopamine hit, you have fun, and then you try something more. And so, yeah, like you can have a, a constrained learning environment where it's forced and it's not fun, but you're just trying to achieve a result and it sucks. And so genuinely, if you have fun with most things in the tech world and you just keep having fun with it, you don't need motivation because you'll just be bored and you'll just start poking at something and you'll have fun. So thinking on that same topic, so have you dealt with any kind of burnout while you were studying or if you did, how did you handle that? So while I was studying cybersecurity, um, not really burnout, no. Um, occasionally, the sensation of being overwhelmed, yeah. Um, but that's because I just started getting lost and kind of jumping from one thing to the other because, you know, there's like, oh, this new thing, oh, this new thing. <laughs> and so <laughs> you kind of get into that, like, dog and a squirrel mind. And so not a whole lot of burnout, but it's because... My method is, is that I don't go too deep into one particular thing until I reach the end. Because I've worked in IT long enough to know that there is no end to an IT concept. And so I tend to focus in on one particular area. And then if I start to feel like that's a drag, I will go to something that's adjacent to it in concept and start playing with that. And then a lot of times it either takes me right back to that main thing that I was focusing on, or you know, I go off into another direction, learn something new, and then come right back. <laughs> and so the learning and education of it, not a whole lot of burnout, no. So what do you feel about certifications? Do you think certifications or degrees are required? So I don't believe in either. Um, because obviously it's, you know, a monetary barrier for people. And so it's not a really good method to ensure that you get, like, true talent, correct ideas, new ideas, and things like that. Um, because sadly, you know, for some places, for some companies, you can just sort of buy your credentials and walk in the door and get a job. And that's a terrible system. Um, and then also any type of credential degree etc. You know, yeah, those those are all things that make someone money. And so they shouldn't really be viewed as something as a must have. And so I enjoy getting credentials um, like certifications. Um, like after I sort of spend time with whatever that, that uh, certification is about. And so I spent time on TriHackMe and then I got the EJPT. It was affordably priced. Um, and then I did pay for my own um, start of the OSCP, um, but I, I had that ability because I had a full-time you know, uh, staff position salary. And so, you know, yeah, I had that ability, but for a lot of people, they don't always, and especially if they're, you know, post-high school, um, mid-college or post-college, and they want to get this extra boost of education. And so I do enjoy them. Um, I think they have a place. I just think they shouldn't be used as a uh, minimum point of entry because then it just becomes a uh, an HR game. Yeah, that th those are good points, especially for entry-level roles because, you know, you're coming in and expecting people to have those. And, you know, one way to look at some of the certifications too is just kind of a 
a point in time evaluation of your skill set. So if you plug away really hard at the OSCP and just get through it where you understand everything and you don't touch that for a while, you'll lose that skill set. So it's, I mean, it's like training for sports. If someone trained for the Olympics, they're at that conditioning level, strength level and all that. If they don't do it for a while, they're going to lose that. I mean, they can get it back. And with, you know, when you put the time and effort in to try to get that back, that could be pretty difficult to get to that level. So when someone comes in that certification's a couple years old or whatever, then it's really hard to gauge if they, they still have that skill set. Yeah. And I agree. I mean, and even, um, offset kind of has the, you know, a different side of the issue of certifications with their recent change up to reemphasize, you know, active directory. Um, you know, it, it does beg the question. It's like, well, if you got your OSCP, you know, five years ago when they didn't stress active directory is your certification is valued as you know, a person who just got it, where it has an emphasis on active. And so that's why they should be really a company should kind of reward you with a certification periodically just so that you can prove that you've been doing that stuff. That's why, like, you know, you have the meme of, you know, a, a CISSP and then 15 years of Kubernetes on an entry level job is just so absurd. <laughs> yeah, they get ridiculous. And I even, t- I even know people that are you know, senior level in the industry and they go in for these interviews and they're wanting you to be a red team expert at the same time. They want you to be a a web application pen testing expert. And typically you don't, well, there's some people out there that do everything and is good at all of it. But if you're a really good infrastructure pen tester and really mastered that, you're not going to be as good on the web app pen testing side and expect people to know both. I mean, it's like back in my sysadmin days, I ran into a role one time. They wanted someone to have like a a Cisco cert. And I think it was more, it was probably CCNP level and wanted someone to be Oracle certified. So no network and databases, those two don't work together. Maybe you find a sysadmin, they may install Oracle or do something with it, but just some of these companies, the, these job descriptions, I think it really makes it hard for them to hire people when they give these outrageous job descriptions. Yeah. And you know, it's definitely someone trying to, well, in a misinterpretation of do IT practices and trying to get, you know, a generalist that can do everything at an expert level, which is absurd. Um, But uh, yeah, I had a role where they wanted me to do um, data and business, but they also wanted me to develop Python, um, Oracle, and um, manage SQL servers. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And, And generalized IT at the same time. So yeah, it happens. Oh, yeah. (laughs) <laughs> sometimes you just don't know if it's just management doesn't understand. And sometimes it's job descriptions. Cause I worked for this company before as a red team lead and we were looking for a red teamer in India. And so the job description didn't have anything on there about active directory, not very heavy on the infrastructure side. So, you know, we weren't finding anyone and I went back and looked at the job description and updated it to add active directory and make it more, towards infrastructure and less towards application and stuff. We were able to find someone then, but we went like months without finding anything. And I went back and looked at the job description and said, yeah, this is why. But yeah. Yeah. And a lot of it comes from, there's not really a push or a drive to sort of update and re-educate 
management and HR and hiring managers on like how technology works <laughs> or like what person of a particular skill level you actually need for certain jobs. And it's kind of like how, you know, you go back to like the 1930s and then every movie revolves around like a physics professor who can just do everything. Um, we've somehow circled back around to that, but they're actual job descriptions that affect people. <laughs> yeah, it's pre pretty interesting the way that works and, and to see some of the, you know, just other things in the industry, HR, well, a lot, specifically a lot of times recruiters not really knowing what the jobs entail. I mean, I was getting, I haven't done firewall stuff since 20, uh, 2005, but over the years I've had people reach out to me for operations security stuff, you know, firewall or endpoint protection, IDS or IPS. And I haven't done that stuff in a long time, but they just reading the resumes. I guess part of it is, them not understanding. And then the other thing is they just shotgun out a bunch of uh, messages and just waiting to see what they get back, taking that approach to, but yeah, and you can't put too much blame on recruiters. They, you know, they're kind of like human real estate agents. And so they kind of have to like really push numbers and just kind of throw an application into the swarm of humans that are around it <laughs> and hope one of them touches it. <laughs> And so I, I understand their side of it. It is very hard for them to just reach out into the giant depths that is IT and cybersecurity and actually find the person that they're not super sure what the job actually does, but they think that person can do it. But there are, there are some really good recruiters, and I know some. And if you're really wanting to do good in that industry, understand what it is, what we do, and be able to you know read people's LinkedIn profile resumes and kind of see what they they do and just kind of get involved in the community because some of the most successful recruiters I know of, they're going to conferences and stuff. Another one yeah. example is Kathleen Smith. Uh, she's doing, she does the higher ground and it's like higher H-I-R-E ground uh, village at B-Size Las Vegas. And she does different things in other conferences, you know, doing resume reviews career advice and all that type of stuff, but getting out being part of the community, it pays off too, because it's easier for them to find candidates, but they're also helping people and they understand it better, which makes their jobs easier. Yeah. I got a friend of mine who's a recruiter and he kind of sums up the best way to do it. And he's like, if you want to be a truly hundred percent, just awesome apex predator recruiter, like you a need to specialize. And then B you actually need to interact with the people that you're trying to find. And uh, it's, yeah, it's kind of a, a necessary thing. If you really want to put people in correct roles, you need to understand what that part of the industry is doing. And you need to really understand the people that you're interacting with because you have zero clue what, you know, a SQL developer does. And then you try and place one in a role and then that guy bombs it for the company. They're going to be real mad. At you. So you don't have to go so deep as to, you know, fully understand SQL, but you should definitely educate yourself enough to just ask questions about it. Very true. So we're getting down towards the end of the show. Is there any advice that you'd like to share? I guess my advice would be um, start with free resources first. You know, YouTube, try hack me. Hack the box has free stuff and a whole bunch, ton of providers, you know, 
over the wire, have free education stuff. Um, don't rush it because if you try and rush to the finish line for something like this, it's it's not going to work because you're going to forget all the things that you rushed through in the beginning. And so you don't really need to over-specialize. You need to find the part that interests you most and have fun with it. And that will genuinely carry it to the result you want. Yeah, very great advice. That rushing through it is a big one. And I've even had people in the community that I knew of, someone that was a, they were a reverse engineer. They were going into a pen testing role in college. They took an assembly course. But, you know, some college courses, it's just question and answer. So you don't really have to know the product. And he was going back having to learn assembly for his job as a pen tester. So that's the one of the things, too, people need to consider when you're doing this stuff. If you're going to use it later, make sure you learn it. Because if you try too fast or just do whatever you can to get by it, it's just not going to stick. Yeah, that's definitely one. Don't assume that something is irrelevant, either because it's old or because it's not something you're interested in. Um, still give it a try, get a base understanding because you know you could be uh, really deep in the digital forensics, and then, like you said, something assembly could come up, or like something in Perl. <laughs> and then if you have like at least a base understanding, you might be able to see that something is. Yeah, I totally agree. So thanks for taking time out of your busy schedule to join the podcast. It was great having you on, and it was great getting to meet you last week in person for the first time. Yeah, it was really awesome to meet you in person, and then uh, we'll do it again at DEF CON. Yeah. Besides Vegas. Yeah, I look forward to it. Thanks again. Thanks for being my guest. Thanks, everyone, for joining, and we'll see you on the next episode. BugCrowd's award-winning platform combines actionable contextual intelligence with the skill and experience of the world's most elite hackers to help leading organizations identify and fix vulnerabilities, protect customers, and make the digitally connected world a safer place. Learn more at bugcrowd.com. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Hacker Factory Podcast with Philip Wiley. If you learned something new and this podcast made you think, then share ITSPMagazine.com with your friends, family, and colleagues. If you represent a company and wish to associate your brand with our conversations, sponsor one or more of our podcast channels. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey. You can always find us at the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society.